0: Well, we encounter yet again every year this passage from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, which enshrines our Lord's teaching on marriage and divorce, and it always proves to be a very difficult uh, teaching of his. He's the only religious leader in the history of humankind who has said... Uh, you know, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And it's it's very, very challenging. It's extremely difficult, uh, especially in today's day and age, to get a man and a woman to actually live together in peace and <laughs> actually <laughs> stay together. Very, very hard. So nonetheless, that standard is there. It's a very high calling. Uh There's no doubt about it. So sometimes people think, well, you know, the Old Testament, everything was, you know, really mean and strict. And then in the New Testament, everything's just, you know, Pie in the sky and easy. Well, no, Actually, Christ, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, he really he took the bar and he upped it. He upped the ante when it comes to the moral law. Of course, all the different ritual laws of the Old Testament are done away with, but when it comes to the moral law, the law of God embedded in the nature of things, that doesn't change from one you know era to the other. As far as that law is concerned, Christ came and he summoned us back to the heart to the issue of the heart. So remember, he always says, he says, well, Moses allowed you to divorce your wife because of the hardness of your heart. But they'll become, as the prophet Jeremiah says, there'll be a day that comes when God makes a new covenant with the the house of Israel. And it'll not be like the the old covenant, but it'll be a law that's written on their hearts. Okay, so in the New Testament dispensation, the religion that Christ came to uh, promulgate Uh, it's the heart that really matters and it's the seat, the heart is the seat of the, of the moral life. And, uh, Christ doesn't loosen up the moral law, He, he makes it stricter in a certain sense because he calls us back to its origin and that is the heart. So, marriage, human sexuality, very, very important, very challenging, no doubt about it, but, uh, it really brings me back again to all the garbage we're seeing here in the news. Um so if you can bear with me again, I, I'm gonna talk about this. Now really, I think good news, alright, to relieve some of the bad news. When I gave a homily on the, uh, priest sex scandal and, and McCarrick and the whole issues, you know, going on here that we're, we're, we're looking at in the media, on Assumption, the Feast of the Assumption, I hadn't even read the Supreme Court, uh, Um, of of, uh, Pennsylvania's uh, finding. I hadn't even read that. And I I think the people that I was speaking to had, and they were under the impression that I was preaching because I had read that. (laughs) So I preached this homily, I mean, I really—I gave a talk. It was 20 over 20 minutes. It was ridiculous. Uh, the people didn't care, though, because it was—it was an important thing and it had to be said. And I don't have the time. <laughs> crying out loud, because you know, to do a short homily, it actually takes a lot of time. You know, the—the the homily I gave on Humanae Vitae, I was preparing months. I probably put 40 to 50 hours of preparation into a 12-minute homily. Yes. Isn't that crazy? So I just I don't have that time as a priest. I'm I'm every day I'm ministering and, and trying to uh do um administrative duties and it's just crazy. I don't have the time to prepare homilies. So I just talk off the top of my head and it went over twenty minutes, but the people in that case didn't mind because it really needed to be said. I didn't even know about this um finding from the grand uh court, the grand jury or the Supreme Court, I'm sorry, of Pennsylvania. Very disturbing. Um, I do have to say, first of all, it's sad that the Boston Globe, you know, back in 2002, and the New York Times, and uh, a secular court of authority have to call us as the Catholic Church to account. It's really sad. And that we are actually getting better because of pressure from the outside world. You know, and we haven't been able to bring this pressure on ourselves, but we got to wait for it to, to basically, you know, come from the outside. It's really, it's, a, it's very sad, a very, very sad commentary, extremely pathetic. Nonetheless, our response is, I think, is good. Um, within two days, the president of the Council of American Bishops and the Vatican got together and put together a plan. In two days. <laughs> so this is, this is what some of, uh, this is Cardinal, uh, DiNardo, who is the, who's the head of the USCCB, the United States, um, Conference of Bishops. This is what he, he writes a lot, but here's a few, this is the basic thing, what he's saying. He says, okay, earlier this week, the USCCB Executive Committee met again and established an outline for these necessary changes. Number one, uh, there'll be, there'll be three goals. Number one, an investigation into the questions surrounding Archbishop McCarrick we're going to find some interesting stuff. It's not going to be pretty and it's going to be extremely difficult PR because it's going to involve a lot of homosexuality. Okay. That's but anyway, that's Tedeschi's commentary. That's not what Denardo said. So, number one, an investigation of the questions surrounding Archbishop McCarrick. Number two, an opening of new and confidential channels for reporting complaints against bishops. Okay. What they were finding is People knew this stuff about McCarrick. His seminarians knew it about McCarrick. But when they would bring it to other people, it would only get up so high in the chain. You know, the complaints would only rise so high in the hierarchy and then they would just mysteriously be blocked. Okay? Mysteriously be blocked, right? So, and then it, it basically created this environment for this guy to rise up the ladder to become a cardinal. So there's going to be an opening of new and confidential channels for reporting complaints against the bishops. Basically, like you can give a phone call directly to the Pope. I mean, that's essentially what it's going to come down to, you know. I mean, that's how pathetic it has to be, that the Pope has to micromanage everybody, you know. So, but it is a good thing, though. Three, advocacy for more effective resolution of future complaints. These goals will be pursued according to three criteria. Proper independence, sufficient authority, and substantial leadership by laity. Okay, so there is always this talk about well, let's put lay commissions together to hold the bishops accountable, and there's a way that you can do that, but you really have to be careful because there is a the divine structure of the church is not a democracy. It's not a democracy. Okay, so the people don't have the power to depose the pope or bishops or anything like that. Um, but how then do you have the laity, you know, able to hold the leadership, even the bishops, accountable? How do you do that? So it's not an easy, you know, sort of balance to strike, but you can do it, and they're gonna, they're gonna do it, alright? So we've already begun, uh, to develop a concrete plan for accomplishing these goals, relying upon consultation with experts, laity, and clergy, as well as the Vatican. We will present this plan to the full body of bishops in our November meeting. In addition, I'll travel to Rome to present these goals and criteria to the Holy See to urge further concrete steps based on them. The overarching goal in all of this is stronger protection against predators in the church and anyone who would conceal them. Protections that will hold bishops to the highest standards of transparency and accountability. Allow me to briefly elaborate on the goals and criteria that we have identified. I'm not going to read this whole thing, but just let me read this one. Okay? The first goal is a full investigation of questions surrounding Archbishop McCarrick. These answers are necessary to prevent a recurrence and so help to protect minors, seminarians, and others who are vulnerable in the future. We will therefore invite the Vatican to conduct an apostolic visitation to address these questions in concert with a group of predominantly lay people identified for their expertise by members of the National Review Board and empowered to act, so forth and so on. He has a lot to say in this, and it's all very good. So he's not sitting there. You know, what I appreciate by this response, it's not like... Oh, I feel so bad. My heart is so grieved. I'm shocked. You know all of these kind of emotional things that you know the politicians have got to put together these these adjectives and they open up their thesaurus and they try to find them. You know the, the, a new word to, to express some kind of emotion. And it's all words. So they're not, this is not words. This response is real. It's concrete and it came together quick. So again, it's sad that we had to let all of these you know influences from the outside. Bring us to this, but i mean i 'm personally happy with the response. It was two days, and the Vatican is going to be involved, which it really does need to be, unfortunately, you know, like the pope doesn 't have enough stuff to do right it's it 's really, really sad, but there 's going to be a purging and a cleaning up, and the laity are going to really be needed they 're going to be essential in this, okay because the bishops have failed um, i don 't you can 't even recount the kind of stuff that was going on with these priests in Pennsylvania. You can't even talk about it. You can't even mention it. Any sexual activity on the part of a cleric whose, whose body and soul have been consecrated to sacred service, any unchastity on their part is sacrilege. Okay, But in addition to just the fact of on chastity being sacrilege, these guys are engaging in overt blasphemy and sacrilege. The sacred ministers of the church engaging in overt blasphemy and sacrilege. Um, What we're going to find here, and this is going to be a PR... uh, We have to have PR geniuses, essentially, to make this work because... What's going to happen when we look into that, that first of the three points, when we look into McCarrick, you're going to find a whole subculture of homosexual, active homosexuals amongst the priests who protect each other, who cover each other's backs, and who have a whole system of blackmail. It's going to be really gross. It's going to be really sick. Um, and uh, the, the PR stunt is basically, okay, we know, you know the broader society absolutely abhors pedophilia as they should. But essentially applauds homosexuality. But the reality of it is that the pedophiles are being empowered by the homosexuals within the, within the clergy. Okay? So there's a broader issue of homosexuality, active homosexuality amongst the clergy. And that's the cause. And it's, how do we say to the world, guys, you know, to clean up the pedophilia crisis, we've got to clean up active homosexuals amongst the clergy. See you see the conundrum that we're in, okay? So we really need wisdom, and the Pope in particular, who's become a poster boy in the media for like everything pro, you know, secular. Um, he's going to have to use a lot of wisdom and have a lot of discernment, and he does. He does. Pope Francis is a very smart guy, and he knows. He's got a lot of discernment and judgment. Um, I think he probably he's learned his lessons because he made a lot of mistakes actually when he was. Uh, Bishop of Buenos Aires, he made a lot of PR mistakes, and so as Pope, he's kind of determined not to make those mistakes again. But it's going to be really, really hard. Okay, so we need to pray, uh, pray for this. Um, I've gone on too long already. So I just hopefully that's a little bit of good news, you know, in the midst of, of some darkness.